Hi, I'm Jared Lombardo, and welcome to Episode 8 of the Conventional Podcast. This episode is the second of two episodes about Nandescon, an annual anime convention in Denver that I have volunteered at every year since 2001. You can download the previous episode, Episode 7, with NDK directors Jeremy Pita, Kelly O'Neill, and Chris Lang from conventionalpodcast.com. Each year, the convention staff are invited to join the Board of Directors camping at Cherry Creek State Park in Aurora, Colorado. These recordings were made that weekend in June 2018. My name is Amanda Lieberman. I'm the executive director of Nondescon. What is NDK? The business answer is NDK is a 501c4 nonprofit organization dedicated to Japanese art, culture, and entertainment, obviously focused mostly on animation. That's what NDK is in business. But in truth and reality, NDK is a place for communion. Um, I believe it's a place for the anime community to come together. And even if they're not interested in anime, you know, just general fandom, geekdom, people coming together and being that way with each other, being able to share that kind of love of their fandom together. You know, we have so many different kinds of people who meet on all sides of the professional as well as behavioral spectrum. You never know what you're going to get, but everybody gets together and they just make something really special and safe. That's the other thing. It's a very safe environment for you, no matter who you are, no matter what you like, and no matter how you dress. It's inclusive. How did you get into the event management space? Growing up, my father was a, I guess you would call it a trade show runner for, um, he was the product support manager for John Deere Industrial for many, many years. And so he had a lot of trade shows under his belt. And I'd been on trade show floors since I was I don't know, two or three years old. And um, I was aware of how trade shows worked. And then, let's see, how I got into NDK is kind of a different thing. Um, I was a supportive girlfriend. That's, that's really it. Um, Jeremy, my husband now, he was the person who was running security for NDK, or for, no, I'm sorry, for Starfest, the sister convention, for a long time. And so I volunteered there with him, um, being a supportive girlfriend, not really knowing what I was getting into or what a convention even looked like, a fan convention at least. And then um, after Starfest was done, he says to me, well, you know, why don't you come work with with me at NDK? It's an anime con. And I looked at him square in the eyes, and I'm never going to forget this. (laughs) I said, what the hell is an anime con? (laughs) So, (laughs) you know, and then I I was introduced to their guest services head at the time, and um, I was the person who was in charge of handling Scott McNeil. Um, I was the volunteer. I'd never done anything like it before. And um, I followed him all weekend. I was his personal handler. I made sure that he didn't get glomped, licked, or anything else on my watch. And he didn't, which was good. And um, the next year, they gave me a department full of people who handle guests. So I was the first guest escort, technically. And then two years later, the woman who was the executive director at the time offered the convention to me, and I said yes. So when did you join NDK, and when was that transition? My first convention was in 2002, which was NDK 5. Um, so I was a volunteer for NDK in 2005 through 2008, and then took over in 2009. Actually, no, I'm sorry, 2008. Ten years ago. Long time. Why do you think you were picked like why why did why did the former directors tap you to be you and Jeremy to 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 run the show like that? I think more than anything else it's because I'm very organized. I I love spreadsheets and that's something that I got from my dad. He's a spreadsheet outlook and excel king. And um you know he kind of he taught me how to how to flow things through spreadsheets and I just had, you know, I'd done some college, I'd done, obviously, like, some organizing on the side. I've always helped friends get organized. But, you know, it was, I just think it was the fact that I was organized and that I understood and I knew what needed to be done for guest service escorts. And I just did it without any sort of execution problems. I think a lot of other areas at the time were run by people who were really, really into the fandom. And um, didn't have a lot of, not necessarily um, business sense. And that's not a bad thing. Obviously, everybody has their own fortes and whatnot. But um, me not being an anime fan, I think, helped the whole situation. Because I was more interested in helping the guests as people versus helping them as the roles that they play. And approaching them on that level 
was apparently very novel to them. There were a lot of comments at the time about how, oh, wow, this is a very different guest services program than what we're used to. This is different. We like this. Thank you. So you sort of built up how guest services work in that role, and then that extended into your directorship, right? Yes. Where did that go? How did that continue to evolve? Well, believe it or not, I wasn't a director before I took over the convention. I literally was just an area head of guest service escorts for three years before um, they offered me the convention. And the year that I took it over, they told me, or Becca, who was my predecessor, at the time said that, you know, this is going to be a year that you're an assistant director and you'll work under me and, you know, I'll teach you how to do this and that. And um, it turns out that that year was particularly, it was very busy and it was very hectic. And Jeremy and I just ended up taking it over. And at the time, she, she had told us that we were going to have another two or three years underneath her. At the end of that show, she literally handed the keys to me and that was that. So I kind of had a crash course in convention learning and how to deal with staff members and um, things like that. What is your emotional reward from doing this job? Why do you keep doing it? You know, for the longest time, I really didn't know that. I just was thinking, this is really good. You know, I get to organize something and I get to do something that just benefits people. You know, this helps people out. This gives them a place for them to be themselves. And um you know, I w- that was something I just sort of told myself for the years. But then as maybe it was a self-fulfilling prophecy, because as the years go by, I see that's exactly what I do. I generally hold space for these attendees to do something and giving them the space and the creative uh, or the ability to do something creative and do something in community with each other. That's really what I do. How do you make that space safe so that they can be creative with each other? Well, I think there are two aspects to that. The first one is, obviously, we have a security staff, you know, from the more practical side. We have our security staff, very capable, very smart. And we have people who take care of us medically. We have, you know, paramedics, things like that. But more importantly, safe from the emotional standpoint and from the, the geek mindset standpoint, you know, these are, these are kids a lot who have, been, who have been teased and who it has not been a safe place for them to actually practice or, you know, live or express their fandom as much as they would like in everyday life. And so I would like to say that offering space and holding safe space for that is simply just going, look, this is this is accepted. What you do here, what you like, your fandom is completely accepted and everybody around you either shares the same kind of fandom or one that's very close to yours. And just being in a community of like-minded individuals and people who really care and people who aren't going to judge if you're wearing a set of cat ears or whatever it is that you you have on your body to express your fandom just having the safety of not having people judge you i think that's a lot of the other part of having a safe space how do you encourage that safety of people not judging you how do we encourage it obviously we don't allow i mean obviously if we see teasing or anything like that that's not something we're going to take at all we have a very strong anti-harassment policy which is basically, you know, if anybody touches you, if anybody says something to you that you don't like, if you feel that you're, if something uncomfortable is happening to you, you need to speak with us immediately and we'll take care of the situation. I mean, that and if you look at all of our staff members, they're just like you. They're just like the attendee. They're, they have, a, you know, their favorite anime shirts on. They're wearing cat ears or they're wearing something that, you know, that basically gives a visual cue to the attendees. Hey, this is OK. Your fandom is welcome here. You're welcome here. I think another big part of it is the fact that my husband, not to brag, is an amazing face man. He's up on stage. He believes it. He's the big anime fan. He's the one that's out there saying, hey, you know, I'm just like you and I'm here and this is NDK and, and you're welcome here. He literally says that every time he's on stage up at opening and closing ceremonies. I always call it his glory, glory, hallelujah speech because he gets up there and talks about how, you know, NDK is community, NDK is love. We love you. We want you to be here. You're welcome here. So we do a lot of, we put that out there visually. We talk about that on our social media. We often refer to our attendees as family, like, hello, NDK family. This is what we have coming up this month. So we try to encourage that sense of community in every breath that we take as a convention. So you mentioned the first, that first year as the, in your show running role, it was a crash course in, in operating the convention. What are some of the things you learned then and then learned in the following years? Well, I would say the first thing I learned is communication between two, <laughs> between the convention uh, staff 
is by far the most important thing. We had that year was had the distinction of having no less than 12 ambulances called throughout the weekend for a variety of reasons, most of which were incredibly minor, a couple of which were more serious. But even so, not one person on one side of the building knew what operations was doing on the other side of the building or why these ambulances had been, had been called. So it was very much a, you know, sometimes the head didn't know what the feet were doing and vice versa. So it was um, definitely a, a course in making sure that everybody talked, every, making sure everybody knew that what everybody else was doing and trying to get everyone to row in the same position or in the same direction. How do you do that, though? Like, so you realize the problem was they weren't communicating. How do you actually make them communicate? Well, first of all, I would circulate a lot. That was what I learned. I learned the, uh, the pattern of the executive director is like, go to operations, sit, get briefed, know what's going on, and then walk around to the other departments and not just tell them what happened, but also explain how this might affect their area or how, um, how this affects the convention as a whole. People might need a heads up on certain situations, things like that. And that, that sort of communication is fine if you have an all-hands meeting at the end of every day, and that would be ideal. But since NDK is 24 hours, and a lot of these, a lot of our departments do operate as islands, it's really hard for one department for, to know everything that happened in the other department, even if it would affect them, if that makes any sense. How do you do the filtering and selection of what to tell who during the con as you, as you were going around with that? Well, with the exception of things that are, you know, like proprietary or too sensitive or private for a public talk, I just generally, okay, we have an ambulance. This person fell down. This person fell down in this area. Okay. Well, obviously we have our paramedics. We have um, our safety staff that was available at the time. But when the paramedics are called, what departments do they block? What, you know, what areas need to be held open? What, you know, do we need to worry about transporting them to and from? Is it going to go through a line, like, for example, our big cosplay line or a big AMV line? You know, how is that going to, how is it going to affect every area? Because truly, you know, the, the convention is really like a body. If something hits the hand, it's not like that's not going to affect the rest of the body. Everybody's going to feel it in one way, shape, or form. So even if it is just somebody, like, like I said, falling down, and that there's a, you know, people coming through with a stretcher, it's still going to affect everyone. You just have to, you know, kind of have the presence of mind to know what areas are going to be touched, um, specifically by traffic control. Or if that person, if, that, if somebody else in other departments know that person, hey, just so you know, so-and-so fell, they're okay, they're being taken to the hospital. A lot of this is also intrinsic. Like, you have to explain to the area heads, because, you know, they're all volunteers. And this is a community, and a lot of people know each other. So just communicating that to any department that may be affected by it, I think, is important. So given that this show is an all-volunteer staff, how do you encourage new people to join and, and keep the people you have who are effective? Retention is a problem with, with every show. What are you and your team doing around that? It's interesting that you ask that because we have a lot of, um, there's a lot of discussion going on with that with our board of directors right now. We seem to have a problem that a lot of other shows are having, which is an aging staff. You know, like you get to a certain age, people are going to have families, people are going to take breaks because they're having families, or, you know, life happens, you have aging parents, stuff like that. And, you know, obviously you can't spend as much time on the show as you used to. So right now what we're trying to do is we're doing a lot of volunteer push. I mean, you know, we're trying to get our volunteers your coordinator out there much more alive, much more talkative and in people's faces about what it means to be NDK staff and volunteers for NDK staff. Um, the other thing we're doing is we're, we're changing incentives. We used to just offer, you know, like, hey, if you work six hours, you get this item. And then 18 hours, you get this item or however many, whatever the threshold is there. But now we're talking about at some point doing Something along, we're going to um, change it to reimbursing their registration for the current show because it's hard to be like, hey, so-and-so, you can volunteer for this show and then we'll reimburse you for the next show if you work 16 plus hours. That's not as exciting as, hey, if you work 16 plus hours, we'll reimburse you this show, this show right here that you're at. So we're looking into it, obviously, with our legal staff and talking to and, and talking to people to see if that's even something that they would want but we're hoping that will change retention the other part of this is just you know marketing we have to get 
our volunteer people out there and our volunteer, like the incentives, you know, like I was saying before out there and tell people what it would be to be part of NDK staff, because it's not just, it's not just the stuff, you know, and it's not just the, the swag. It's not just the reservation or the re- registration refund. It's also the fact that, you know, we have a staff camping trip and we have staff picnics and we hang out together when we can throughout the year. We have meetings, you know, we have a great dead dog party where we all hang out after the show and talk and awards are given out, you know, and we have fun, exciting pizza and things like that. You know, there there's a lot of community in staff as well. And I honestly think that's what keeps a lot of our staff going, even even though a lot of them have families, even though, you know, our head of operations is going to be uh, two weeks a mom this year and she's planning on being at the show, albeit she's planning on being in the show in a sleeping room upstairs off the convention floor. But still, she's planning on walking around the convention floor with a newborn at some point, you know, and she wants to bring that into her child's life even that early. I think that says a lot about us as a show. So one thing that NDK has that many other shows don't have is it has a two-tiered system of volunteers, and then staff, who are also volunteers but classed differently and and rewarded differently. How does that work, and why does NDK have that system? This was a system that I inherited from the previous executive director, and it, it seems to have worked as far as when I took over the show, and we've just kind of adopted and kept it going. And I didn't really realize that it was more unique until, I don't know, maybe a few years ago when we were looking around and going, wow, a lot of other people have just volunteers or a lot of people have this other system and never really thought of it that way before. So, but as it stands, the way it works is this. Our volunteer staff are generally the, the, the stuff that is like, you know, not intense, not high stress positions. We have people, you know, here, like you're sitting on a door making sure there are badges. You're doing the line control. You're, you know, helping out our volunteer coordinator check on other people and make sure that they're at their posts or see if they need to be relieved for a break or for lunch or something like that. We try to keep our volunteers at a less intense pace and less intense jobs than our staff members. That described the volunteers very well, but, and earlier you were talking about the rewards for volunteering and encouraging volunteers. The staff level has different, it has different duties. It just in comparison to volunteers, it's clearly going to be higher stress things with more responsibility. How do you make sure? Well, how do you make sure that those people are doing a good job? But if they are doing a good job, how do you keep them? To answer the first part of it, how to make sure they're doing a good job, half of the battle is putting people into the positions that you see their strengths are good for. I try very hard, and I also encourage the area heads to watch, you know, volunteers and staff members as they grow and see if they show interest in other areas or if they're really, if they have a specific skill set that would be good for this or that. Or, hey, did you know this person was in theater in college and can run a soundboard? Gee, maybe we should put them in main events, you know, something like that. Um, But first of all, it's recognizing your staff, seeing who they are as people, seeing the skill sets that they have and that they come in with. And then recognizing that and putting them in the positions that they that they're best suited for and that they enjoy. You know, one of the biggest things we say here at NDK is if you're not having fun, you need to go back to being an attendee. You know, if you're not enjoying your time on staff, if this is not fun for you, it's okay. You don't need to be staff anymore. We want you to enjoy this. So if you're not doing something that you enjoy, like you just said, what's the point of being on staff? You know, why would you want to, why would you want to stay? Making sure they're having a good time is really paramount to myself and to, of course, all of the other board. But I mean, most particularly Jeremy. Um, My husband is a big fan. He's the hospitality guy on top of being our MC. His most public job is definitely being on stage. But then I would also say that the more private side and the more one-on-one side of his job is attendee and staff support. Like... I'm not even sure if he knows that he's doing it, but he walks around to a whole bunch of, you know, attendees. If somebody's sitting there and crying, he'll ask them, hey, are you are you okay? What can I do to make your weekend better? And he, he's a big fan of granting wishes. Like, oh, you really wanted to see this guy? Let me introduce you to him personally. Hey, you've got five minutes, that sort of thing. But he does the same thing with staff. 
So, you know, he sees that somebody in our video department is not having the best day. He tries to sit down and talk with them, see if they're doing okay. If they have any concerns or complaints about the show, he listens, you know. And we encourage all of our board to do this, but I think Jeremy is probably the best at doing it. We actually have three staffing directors and three people who wander around the floor and just kind of, like, interact with the community as a whole. We have Jeremy, we've got um, Kelly O'Neill, and then Rex. They all go together, and they they go and do that sort of function on top of their operational duties on the floor. So retaining staff, that's always the hard one, I think. Everybody has different reasons for going into a convention, and everybody brings something different, right? So most people, no matter who you are, they want to be heard, and they want to be recognized, and they want to be validated for the good things that they do. I would also say that everybody has a different motivation for doing shows. You know, some people just want to be part of the community and they show up and they just want to be part of the fandom and it's cool and and that's that's really their their motivation. But other people, like I would say everybody on my operations staff, I don't think anybody on that staff has actually attended a convention, you know, just as fun in years. <laughs> their their reason is they like making things run well. They like being the center. They like being the the brainwave, the hub, the people who are literally directing everything that happens at the show. I think that, um, you know, some people just like make like doing a good job and being there and being part of something bigger. And I think that that's another reason why we have staff members. And But even so, I'm waxing poetic here. You have to identify the reason why people want to stay and then give them as much as you can that reason. You mentioned the three staffing directors. What is the like board of directors composition like? Not you don't need to name names or all the positions, but just like how are things? What is the organizational structure? We're kind of um, we like saying we're we're we have two hats. We have our board of directors hats, and then we have our operational directors hats, and. Um, Sometimes that can be confusing. Obviously, our board of directors is very traditional. We have our president, vice president, treasurer, secretary, all of that. But And um, obviously, people who are board members at large, they don't have a position in the structure, but they are obviously there, and they have a board on or a vote on the board of directors. But then the moment the gavel is down and we're out of meeting, we have our operational directors. Myself being the executive director, I have, um, let's see, and there are eight, no, seven other directors under me at the time. Um, we have a director of security and safety, merchandise, you know, marketing and art, somebody who handles all of that. My husband, Jeremy, um, hospitality and MC duties. I mean, we have an archivist. We call our resident old man who belongs in our museum. <laughs> <laughs> The wonderful and talented Guy Davis. And we have, um, you know, people who handle our website and our technical needs and all of that. But we have to wear two hats because, you know, when when we're in session as a board, I'm not part of the board of directors. I'm, my position is ad hoc. It just comes, you know, with the position I hold in operational. Um, I'm, um, I'm personally the only employee of the board of RMAA. So Tara, our president, is the person in charge when meetings are happening. She runs meetings. She makes sure everything goes well and um, that all our agenda items are covered. But the minute the gavel is down, I'm suddenly her boss because she's my director of marketing and art. So we have to kind of have dual hats and wear two faces to get the job done in and out of the boardroom. Is that ever confusing for the staff or do they really just have to interact with the operational directors and it's not a problem? Mostly they just have to operate with the operational directors. But, you know, um, a few years back, we had a push, a big push for, hey, guys, this is our chain of command. And um, most of the staff were kind of like, okay, um, you're still my director, right? And that was that was basically that. They really it doesn't seem like there's much care or much worry about our, our operational titles versus our, our RMAA titles, if that makes any sense. They just want to know who they work under. They want to know if things are still the same or if we're changing stuff and they want to talk about the issues for their area and they just want to do a good job. So sometimes chain of command as much as we would like to express it out there and go, hey, this is how we work. You know, just so you guys know, this is how the how the parent organization for NDK works. It doesn't seem like there's a, a ton of interest out there for that, which is fine. You know, everybody just wants to get the job done at the show. What are some of the highlights from 
the recent years of the show for you personally, either either content or or operational wins? Well, I would say that <laughs> NDK 2013, the year of the no, not 2013, the year of the Natural Disaster Convention. That was that was I was a proud mama that year. The Marriott Denver Tech Center, where we were at, a main capacity or full capacity for that building was 9,000 people. That's as many people as could possibly fit in the building inside every hallway, standing in every room, in every bathroom, full capacity. We had 8,500 in that building that year, like staff, guests, everything included. And um, (laughs) then the fire alarm went off for reasons that we don't really have to get into because it's just ridiculous. So, um, yeah, we had that building evacuated arguably in under seven minutes. It took me seven. I was on the top floor in the uh, guest services suite at the time. And I had to come down the stairs, obviously, because the elevators weren't working. It took me, by the time I got down the floor to the convention floor from the 11th floor, which was about seven minutes because of the traffic and the stairwells, the entire convention floor was entirely empty. It, nobody was in there except for, I think, you and a handful of other people who were high-level convention staffers. After the after we, and we after that happened, like we got everybody back into the hotel, and as we're getting people back in, the tornado sirens go off. So it was an everybody out because of a fire, not really a fire, and then everybody in because of an actual real swear to God tornado. And as of note, this was also the year that about a third of our staff couldn't make it to the hotel because of major flooding in northern Colorado, where there was literally no way for some people to get to the hotel. Like, it took people hours and hours just to get to the hotel that would take, like, maybe a 30-minute drive without the flooding and the roads closures and all of that. So that was probably... I was very proud, though. Like, that kind of... that, That whole fire escape thing, that was unbelievable like the hotel manager and the fire um, chief took me aside after that and they were like we've never seen such a clean evacuation ever and I was just like oh I'm brimming with pride also major props to our attendees who were good and listened to everything we had to say and showed immense trust in us so um, I think that speaks well for us as a staff as well but yeah the attendees really behaved themselves and they were very good and we didn't have any sort of lip or feedback and there weren't people complaining or anything. It was just, oh, this is happening? Great, let's go. So that was really great. I would also say last year there was a really great moment with one of our guests, um, Dante Bosco. As a rule, and just as a sideway here, I generally don't pick guests who don't have more than, you know, who have less than five or six anime roles. Dante is the Dante and Jay and actually Jason Marsden last year were the only two exceptions to that I've ever made. And the reason I made them was because um, I had seen Dante at our little sister convention, Sodak, and um, I watched him interact with the kids there. And I was completely blown away. So I thought, okay, this guy has two, three anime roles, but he's amazing. So let's bring him in. And we did. And he had a poetry panel. I sat in the back for, you know, as long as I possibly could. I want to say it was 20, 30 minutes. I sat and listened to him. He did his own poetry readings. And then I looked around the room and it was completely packed. And this is a room that fits around 150 people seated. And one by one, you know, here, there's my attendees standing up and going up and doing readings uh, of their own poetry or poetry that he had provided for them to read if they just wanted to act it out or wanted to put that out there. And it was, it was incredible. You know, there was a girl specifically who um, was talking about um, her poem was about how she had a stutter and overcoming her stutter and how difficult it was to say the word constellations. And it was kind of a badge of honor when she finally got over her major speech impediment and could say constellations. And that's what this was the title of her poem. And I'm just, I was just blown away by the creativity and the bravery of our people to get up there and put themselves out there in such a vulnerable way. I don't know if other shows do things like that, but I thought that was a really cool opportunity for our attendees. It was something completely off the realm of, of anime, and it still was a packed panel, and everybody was really cool about it and creative, wildly creative. Thinking about creativity reminds me of how you can improve operationally. How does NDK make itself better year over year? Like, What are some of the, the experiments you've tried, and how do you actually 
how do you encourage improvement? Well, I have a saying. I'm really big on this with all of my area heads. And the the saying is, okay, just because it's the way we've done it before doesn't mean it's the way we always have to do it. You know, I ask, I really try to question everything and I encourage the area heads to question everything as well. On one hand, I give them a lot of free range. I go, okay, this is your department. Do what you want to do with it. This is an experiment. And if it doesn't work, we can try something else. So let's say we want to do an hour of blank kind of programming in our video rooms. And maybe it's not completely anime. Maybe it's just a little on the side. Maybe it's, you know, Korean animation. Maybe it's something else. Let's give that an hour and, you know, give the fandom there a nod and see, you know, what kind of interest we have there. So if we do it and it's wildly popular, awesome. Let's make it a couple block hours. Let's, let's, let's see if we can accommodate that and let's see what the community needs versus, you know, just going, oh yeah, this is, we just have to be just this and this is the way we are and this is the way we're always going to be. Um, I find that rigidity specifically in programming is really, is so, is so limiting. It doesn't allow room or breath for creativity. Operationally though, at the end of every year, my operations team and I sit in our operations room and we talk about what didn't happen. Literally the hour that the convention closes, we shut the doors to operations. We sit down and we go, okay, what worked? What didn't work? Let's talk about it. And it's open floor. It's like, if I want to hear everything, I want to hear the good news. I want to hear the bad news. I want to hear all sides of this because a lot of people, um, I found a lot that there there's a lot of staff members that don't want to give the full picture to their directors because they're afraid that if they tell them that they hey you know this didn't work out the way we want to wanted it to or the way you wanted it to they they have this feeling of you know I failed you and that's really not that's not the kind of culture that I want to to grow here I'm looking for you know straight and frank observations even if it's something that's not terribly flattering to the to the convention or to myself let's actually make this the best show we possibly can also there needs to be an element of the ridiculous there's no fun in just having and just having a running everyday show so we have we we allow for a lot of silliness and I use my operations department as an example because that's the area that I'm most stationed in that's the place where I'll hear everything to come in as a director but that's also the most serious most thankless job in the convention hands down like these people are getting complaints from staff members they're getting complaints from from attendees it's completely thankless and they're also handling the most high stress everybody's coming to you with something oh we need this oh we need that right now oh this problem is happening did you know there's a fire over here you know that sort of thing so there needs to be an element of the ridiculous in what we do so I highly encourage in our operations log, which basically keeps the role of everything that's happening, we try every year to have a theme of a story. You know, sometimes it's zombies, sometimes it's pirate attacks, and sometimes it's, oh, look, we were having fuzzy kitten problems. Whatever it is, it's a constant theme running through the log. So when you're doing this thankless job at three in the morning, at least there's the fuzzy kittens that you can talk about to make things a little bit better. The other thing we do is we have a ridiculous hat day on Sunday. Um, I myself will be wearing um, an abominable snow monster hat on my head on Sunday afternoon. And the other thing we do is we have our yearly creating the headdresses of our people. Have you been here for that? Yeah, I've, I've seen some of this. Okay. so Describe the process for... <laughs> Well, everyone who isn't like the 12 people who are ever involved. (laughs) This is very true. Okay. So what we do is every year after we shut the convention doors and have the various serious conversations about what worked and what didn't, while we are having these conversations, we craft the headdresses of our people out of the lost and found items that were left behind from this year's show. This could be anything from, you know, actual headwear to flowers. I think one year we made a plastic dragon hat out of um, somebody's lost toy. But we fashion these headdresses and then we put them on our heads and then we dance around the operations room to whatever loud music we can find. And that's to give good luck to the next show, you know, and scare off the bad evil spirits that want to curse the next convention. Again, ridiculous is really important to uh, to staff morale, especially in non-thanks or the really thankless positions. So in, that, in the section of that early on, you mentioned testing out programming and trying to determine uh, what was effective and not. How are you actually like measuring that? What kind of statistics are you tracking? 
Well, we have a programming, or I guess they call it events now, the event staff. And they go in, we actually have people going in every five to 15 minutes and taking um, tallies of who is in the room. Are they in the beginning of the room? What about the middle? What about right before they close? How many attendees are in the room? And basically, if we see that that, uh, a specific panel has strong numbers each year, we just keep it going. And that's that. Now, when it comes to testing a program, like for example, this year, we're looking at um, introducing a meditation panel from one of our guests. And it's not something that we've ever done before. So I don't know how it'll go over with our attendees. So in this instance, what I'm going to do is have an events person sit in the room the entire time, engage audience participation and reaction. Do you do that sort of tracking with, with anything else? Uh, you know, lines at dealer's room or anything, or is it just inside the programming sessions that you're tracking things like that? We also do things with lines. Um, Gosh, and our guy, Chris Lang, he has the algorithms all in his head. He's run, he's gone through a few line control classes. And um, basically we, he has an algorithm and a plan for how many people can get through lines at specific times. We try to keep tally of when the lines are the highest volume versus the lowest volume, what we can move in and out, and also try to make people in the lines happy because of it. We have certain ridiculous things we do to try to make people happy in lines, even if it's a long three-hour line that is pretty hopeless. Yeah, we do have people that go through the lines. We usually have um, somebody to hold a ticket, and we time how long it takes, you know, just like Disney Fast Passes. How long does it take you to get from the beginning of the line to the or end of the line to the beginning of the line sort of things. You're holding this ticket. Okay, it took this long. Great. Good to know. We try really hard not to have people standing in lines for hours on end. I can't think of anything worse than being in a convention that you've waited all year for that you've paid money for and then you basically spend hours and hours in line and that's kind of why we came up with our uh, fast pass system for autographs it was two o'clock in the morning a few years ago and we sat around and I think it was myself it was Tara and I think it was Chris Lang we were sitting in the tiny little room going okay how can we make autographs better and we just kind of came up with this fast pass system whereas you know every 15 minutes there's a certain amount of tickets that can or people that can go through And instead of waiting in a two-hour line, all you have to do is show up at the time on the ticket versus, you know, sitting in line all day waiting to get your autograph from your guest. But you still have to wait in line to get that ticket. You do. It's significantly shorter, though, I will say that. And they're pretty darn fast at it. So it's better than actually waiting the two hours in line because that's what would happen. People would line up two hours ahead of, you know, whatever guest it was and be sitting there all day missing and then wait to so wait for the next person and then do hours for the next guest. So it's like they'd be missing their entire convention just to get autographs. And that's, that's not the experience that we want them to have. Have you tried using that sort of system for any other things or is it just autographs at this time? Currently, it's just autographs at this time. Um, we do have panels. Actually, I think we're, or last time I chatted with my uh, line control guy, he said he was going to start implementing this on all panels, especially big panels, guest panels, um, because they are so high in demand. And again, we just we just don't want people waiting in lines all day. It's bad for us because there are lines all over the hotel and we have limited space. And it's bad for the attendees because they're waiting in line all day. So we know there's a better way to do it. Yeah, we're going to try that out, a new pilot program for our big guest panels this year, which will be really exciting. We're also moving the location of where we pick up those fast passes to a much wider, much more traveled space. So it's not going to be, oh, you have to wait for this person in this hallway and it's kind of vague. You know, every year you just fine tune it. And I'm looking forward to seeing how it works with panels this year. So you mentioned earlier about picking for voice acting guests, at least people who've been in usually at least five anime. How do you actually pick your guests? What's the process like to find the right people and invite them? Believe it or not, it's just a numbers game for me. I look at the other 12 larger shows than NDK. And I look at who they have going. I look at the trends of, you know, these, oh, this is a new person. Gee, they're in like five other conventions other than us. And I go, okay, well, you know, you look at their profile. You you look at um, their resume and see if they're in any upcoming stuff. And you just kind of pick. Sometimes it's a crapshoot. I'm okay with that. And, you know, either way, the guests that we've had have been really phenomenal. Like we haven't had one that I've been like, wow, you know, (laughs) they really didn't do anything. That's, we've really had just great people. We have a lot of people, um, we call them our guest cheerleaders, who have been to NDK a few times and that actively recruit other people for us. 
we, unlike a lot of other shows, we don't send people out to go get and procure guests. Like, and we don't work with agents generally either. What we do is we work entirely off of reputation and from and direct referrals. Like, there's a guest that comes, they've been here a couple times, they're like, wow, we love this show. What can we do to help you guys? Or, hey, have you ever had this person? And they just recommend right off the bat. And it's basically a, hey, so-and-so said that you would be a good fit for NDK. Would you like to come this year? So a lot of, actually, the majority of our guest services, our guest procurement is literally referrals from previous guests of honor. We have a lot of people who are return guests, too. We kind of consider them part of the NDK family. And nine times out of ten, those guests are people who actively bring people to our guest roster every year. It's always a big flattering uh, point when people have been like, oh my gosh, I've heard of you guys. You have such a great reputation. You do this, you do that. And yeah, it's it's really wonderful to have such a good reputation in, inside the guest circuit out there. How did you build that reputation, though? You talked a little bit at the beginning about being the, the guest escort head for a while, but just how did you build that reputation? The first thing I did was with being in guest services or being the guest escort head, it's very much about a personal experience for the guests themselves. You know, the attendees aren't the only people who are coming to the show. Um, you want to make sure that the guests are having a good experience as well. There's a lot of shows that put, you know, we call them chip and dip cons, just throw, you know, a bag of Cheetos and some Skittles on a table and they call that a green room. And that's not the kind of show that I ever was interested, I was ever interested in running. I'm a big fan of Southern hospitality, and that means taking care of your people and making sure that they're comfortable and making sure they have just all the incidentals that they could possibly need. So the guests show up, they have a basket of gifts specifically curated from Colorado vendors, and we make sure that if they have any dietary needs, obviously that's taken care of in our fully catered meals in our green room. Then I have my secret weapon, which is the fact that I shamelessly enslave my family to work for NDK <laughs> and specifically put them in the guest services part. So my guest services or my green room is run by my amazing mother-in-law, Mary. We try to put moms in there basically as our secret weapon. <laughs> we put Chris's mom and um, Jeremy's mom. We've brought my mom in before and just had people in there that are good at entertaining that don't know anime at all. They don't know the guests. They're just, you know, people who are coming in for this show and the moms do nothing but take good care of them and treat them like their own family. And and that's what they do. So we have a we have a very warm and welcoming guest services department because of that. I also feel that there's it's really a two pronged approach. It's the guest service or the guest or the green room and the warmth there and the fact that it's high quality food, that there's always something for people. We also make sure it's an agent free zone. So it's just literally the guests can be themselves. There's not anybody trying to get their time or recruit them or, you know, try to do business with them at any point. We just try to make it a, this is your space to be a human. You don't need to be on. You don't need to be your character. You just, you can be you in this space. And you can be you around delicious food and snacks and really awesome, nice people who just want to, you know, make sure that you have a good time. And then the second prong is our guest escorts. There is only one escort assigned to one guest throughout the entire convention. And before they come to the convention, we try to pair the escort that would best fit the uh, the feeling and the personality of the guest that's coming. If it's a new person, obviously we don't really have that. We don't really have a, a you know a quantifier on the, how the guest is. But if we have a returning guest, we're like, oh yeah, so and so really likes this, or so and so is a smoker. Okay, cool. Well, we'll put you with an escort who's you know comfortable with that or who who likes the certain level of um, exposure. Because there are some guests who want you know to have their escort with them all the time. You know, going through the hallways, up and down the elevators. You know, we're going to go outside for a smoke. Okay, fine. They're going to do that with their escort. And then there are some guests. I'm looking at you, Kevin McKeever, who don't do anything like that at all. They are notorious for ditching their escorts. <laughs> in in hallways and in crowds so um we also try to put people who are ninjas on guests like that so even if kevin doesn't think he's being followed oh he's being followed for sure but you just don't see them anymore i mean there is a, there's a lot of philosophy that no import no no department is more important than the others in in each show speaking in a warm fuzzy way yes that's true but from my perspective and the way that we run things guest services is paramount um, if you don't have guests, you don't have attendees. If you don't have attendees, you don't have funds to run the next show. So you need to make sure that your guests are happy before all others. 
because that's really, that's what brings people in. Other than attracting attendees through guests, you also can attract attendees through new art or you know merchandise. So both the artist alley and the dealer's room fall out of that. How do you pick those vendors? How does that process work? We had a lot of people left over from the previous administration, but also as we bring new vendors in, let's say somebody retires and we bring somebody else in, we just see whether or not they're a good fit for the convention if they are willing to adhere to our very strict anti-bootleg laws if they, you know, if they're really, if they're good to the attendees, you know, I don't necessarily want a vendor who's going to be yelling and screaming at my kids. That's not the kind of environment that we want either. But the other thing we do is we try really hard to reach out to vendors that are different. We, for the longest time before she retired, we had a vintage kimono dealer who was fantastic, who had, you know, like authentic accessories, kimonos, shoes, things like that from Japan. That was a nice thing to have. The other problem, or not problem, the other thing that we factor we had to take into consideration was the fact that we had a very limited size dealer's room for a very long time. Because we have so many running dealers, we've, for many years, we had the same returning dealers year after year, like literally four or five years of the same vendors in the same space because nobody wanted to leave the dealer's room. Apparently, we're a very high profit margin show because of our dealer to attendee ratio. And that's something that we've done our best to quantify and keep flowing throughout the years. Even when we moved to the Sheridan, which was about, let's say, an extra 5,000 square feet of convention space on top of our old dealer's room. We try very hard to keep the attendee to dealer ratio happy. But when we did bring in extra dealers, obviously we run them through all of our policies ahead of time. NDK has an incredibly strong anti-bootleg policy. Our dealer staff is um, schooled in how to identify bootlegs. And they actively patrol and go through the dealer's room throughout the weekend to make sure that we don't have people putting bootlegs out on the tables midway through the show. A few years ago, we had to let one of our vendors go because they continued to violate the anti-bootleg policy and they went away mid-show. Yeah, I mean, sometimes you have to make hard decisions like that, but we're very strong in our stance. Before we let any dealers in, obviously, we look at what the pictures of the, the shows that they've done before and look for bootlegs and propriety of, of the sort of merchandise they carry as well to see if that would really fit in with the NDK crowd. So there's that. And then we also have a strong relationship with a handful of other shows around the country. My dealer's head now does. He, uh, he's very good at talking with them and going, hey, how, how was this vendor? You know, did, were they good to you? Did they help you? You know, like, how did the attendees take it? How did their booth look? Was it, did it look like it was a garage sale? Did it look like it was a professional trade show? Let's, let's talk about how they were. So we do a lot of background checks for any incoming vendors in a big way. The Artist Alley is much more casual than the dealer's room, but I'm sure there's some amount of jury there. How does that process work there? Believe it or not, there's very little jurying. Really? Yeah. Because that's also a you know, physically limited space. It is. It's a lot larger. <laughs> Apparently this year, by the way, we've had, we have 200 people on our waiting list specifically for Artist Alley. The, our, our head doesn't know what to do with herself right now. She has so many people on the waiting list. It's ridiculous. So Artist Alley is done entirely by two factors. The first one is we have a competition that is done with through the attendees and what their favorite booths are for the year. Favorite craft, favorite artist, favorite uh, jewelry, and then there's another category that's slipping my mind right now. But they get to choose all their favorite booths and if your booth wins, you automatically get into Artist Alley next year. The rest of them I swear to God, are done by rolling dice. It's literally a lottery system. Like, you can have 300 people go forth, and if then the first, you know, how many people, everybody gets a roll. It's just, it's a completely a lottery system. Do the artists respond well to a lottery system and knowing that at least they have an even chance? Some do and some don't. A lot of people, we, we get a lot of flack of, oh, you have a lot of returning artists. And, you know, that's true. We do have a lot of returning artists, but the same artists do put in every single year and have the same shot. The people who know the system really appreciate how how neutral it is because it's not like we're playing favorites. We do have a, we'll have to say this though, we do have a section of 12 booths that are guests, specifically guest booths. These are people who have contributed to the convention in some way, like the girl, Stephanie Cow, who does all of our art for our badges. She gets an artist alley table every year. That's a thank you for, you know, giving us this art and working with us every year and 
giving us something so beautiful. So we do have 12 returning people that come back every year because they contribute to the convention. A lot of people look at that and go, oh, you have the same people every year. Yes, we do, but that's not part of the lottery. I don't know how well known our lottery system is to our artists. I mean, if, if they read the the rules in the, in the FAQ, it's lined out very clearly how we do the selection process. So I guess I would say the people who are aware of the selection process are very happy of how neutral it is. And the people who don't know about the selection process just assume that we're, you know, just playing favorites and give us criticism anyway. But, you know, that's kind of how it works. So we've covered a lot of different areas of the con at a high level because, you know, as the executive director, you have to know a little bit of everything. But relating to the little bit of everything you know, what are some of the biggest learnings you've had in 10 years as executive director? Like things things you'd want to teach someone if you wanted to have a successor or speak to your younger self. I got two really great bits of advice from the previous executive director, and they have rung true for me throughout the years of, of my job here. And the first one is, you're not here to make friends. You will lose friends. And you will lose people who are closest to you for the sake of the convention. And that's absolutely true. I didn't believe it at the time that she told me. And I should have listened carefully. But it's true. You know, you lose people throughout the year. There are differences of opinions. There are, you know, (laughs) irreconcilable differences, as it were. You know, you just... And people change. And a lot of times people just they just don't work with each other anymore so yeah I've absolutely lost people throughout this whole process for the betterment of the convention and that's not just a not just something you tell yourself at night it's it's something that's true you know you go well in retrospect that person probably wasn't the best fit no matter how much how how friendly you are with them or how much you like them personally that's probably the first thing and the second thing that she told me was you start looking for your air now you look for the person who will take over the show from you when you're done right now and I'll say let's see I've been looking for 13 years now because I totally messed up the dates earlier I took over in 2005 not 2008 whoops (laughs) (laughs) it's It's been too long it's only 30 percent of your it's been too long (laughs) um but um you know I still haven't found anybody and I've been looking for a long time. It's an odd combination of things that you would need to take over this job. You need to have the ability to handle all sorts of personalities. You need a deep level of empathy. But you also need to have the complete ruthlessness that it takes to be able to do the job at whatever cost it whatever it at whatever it costs. And you also need to be completely okay with the convention taking over every single bit of your personal space in your house, enslaving your family, like I said before. You need to be okay with this convention, like eating every single part of your life. And then you need to have the knowledge and the wisdom to step back and see where you can stop it from eating your life so it can become more sustainable than just uh, completely all-consuming, if that makes any sense, too. Those two items are bits of advice you actually got at the beginning of your time, and then your time in the role showed you that that advice was valuable and true. But what is something actually new that you've learned that you wish you had known earlier? I've learned that nobody is too good to sit on a door, that you should never ask anybody to do what you yourself are not willing to do. So that's that's a big one. And the other thing, like I said earlier, is the moment that this does not become fun for you, not just your staff members, but you as a director, that's the minute you need to reconsider what your reasons are for doing a show. For me, I do not cease to be entertained and challenged and deeply amused and brought to complete frustration and tears, but then in the same breath, just be awed at the fact that this job never ceases to be interesting. There's every bit of every spec, every bit of the spectrum that is here. It keeps me on my toes. I'm never bored, and I have a community and a staff around me that is just unbelievably supportive and kind. It's um, it's really a privilege. I honestly can't vocalize or quantify the number of question, or number of things that I've learned here. I mean, it's taught me everything from how to deal with people on a personal level to a professional level. I mean, it's it's changed. This convention has literally changed everything about my life and how I perceive and do and live. I think one of the better lessons that I have 
or that I've learned throughout the years here is that never ever doubt the power of professionalism no matter what what place you're in there we visited a lot of shows throughout the years and I've noticed that something that really sets us aside is the way that our board behaves the way we dress, the way we act around other people. It, it really does set us apart from a lot of the other shows out there, you know, and presentation is a big deal. It's kind of hard to quantify, but presentation is a big deal. If, you, if you've put yourself forward and you are collected and you are, I don't know, well-groomed and present yourself in a professional manner, it gets you so much further than you would ever expect far more than I thought I would expect or that I had expected never doubt the power of how you present yourself and being professional and how far it will get you I never would have thought that being you know working for an anime convention that 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 would have made such a difference but it really does you know among your peers it, it honestly it kind of alienates us sometimes when we go to other shows and we talk to them and you know you're you're a you're a woman you're well you're well dressed you're nice and you're sitting there with a bunch of other folks and sometimes it it really does put you apart because everybody else is in jeans and t-shirts and there's nothing wrong with that but we just operate at a different kind of level I suppose all of us come from more professional background we all have very most of us have very high stress other jobs (laughs) that um that do this other than me I mean my board but I was always told to dress nicely and present myself and try to be well-spoken and be authentic no matter where I am. That's something that was instilled in me from a very young age. I believe the rest of my board is very much that too. We're a bunch of professionals running an anime convention and not a lot of us actually watch anime anymore. I guess that's what I meant by saying a different level. We're operating on much more of a admin operational level than hey we're fans and we just want to put on a show and there's nothing wrong with that like you still need that fandom attitude as I said before my husband Jeremy really brings that to the table with our board of directors but the rest of us a lot of the rest of us you know really don't have time to watch anime or in my case never really was an anime fan to begin with. That definition of professionalism included a lot about dress and presentation have you codified that for the operational directors or your or your staff? Or is it just by osmosis that people are taking your example? Some of it's organic. Some of it is codified. My board, as a rule, anytime we go and travel to other conventions, we always dress business casual at the very least. Oftentimes, we're mistaken for the directors of that show, the show that we're visiting, because of the way we are dressed. And it gets us a lot farther than we should sometimes. So, you know, you try to walk by somebody and they don't check your badge. I always try to make a point of turning back to the person at the door and showing them my badge, even if I am dressed really nice. I don't want anyone to, I never want to assume or uh, be presumptuous in in my access when we go to other shows either but that aside I think our board naturally dresses nice and as I've said sometimes that alienates us because we don't look like you know hey we're anime fans like you guys you know but specifically for our high level people we absolutely have um, uniforms Um, my operations heads um, anybody who's front facing in the window they have shirts that say operations and we, we, as a convention, we invest in purchasing them very nice button-down shirts so people are aware of that, of who they are, their position. And it does lend them a certain amount of respect. As I said before, it was also, it, ops is a very thankless job. So that layer of, hey, this is a visual cue that this person is in charge really does help that position. Um, we also have, for the moms up in the green room, we have aprons with our logo embroidered on them. It's a visual cue for our guests to be like, hey, look, there's, there's somebody who's helping serve me today we absolutely have dress codes for all of our guest services staff you must be business casual no less we don't allow jeans we don't allow even nice jeans we don't allow we keep things very very tight when it comes to that because you also don't want your guest services or your guest person to turn around see somebody in a t-shirt and jeans and they look exactly like your guest handler and then suddenly they're walking away with a complete stranger you want to set yourself apart in that way visually not only is that something that's very unique in the anime community um, it's something that really sets our guest services apart you never mistake a guest services person for an attendee at my show ever I also think that it's a really strong point of our board that not that all of us come from different backgrounds, that we're not all anime fans. Jan Scott Fraser 
told me a good piece of advice many years ago. She said to me, she's like, in order to be a good anime, to, to be a good executive director for an anime convention, you have to kill the fan within you. It stops the biases that happen. You know, so when you're looking at your guest roster, it's not, oh my God, I love that show. I'm going to choose everybody from that show or I'm going to choose my personal favorites. There's no, there's no personal bias. That was a very great bit of advice. And, you know, I pointed out to her that I've never been an anime fan. And that's, that's I, I don't think that's a bad thing. I honestly think that's a strength in my position. I, I think that removes a lot of my personal bias. Like I said, a lot of our guest selection is done only via numbers and by guest recommendation. That also is true when it comes to uh, purchasing and being smart about your budget. You're not turning your money into your pet project area or the area where you feel that, oh, this is, this what gives me the warm fuzzies. You know, you approach it from a very, as objective as you possibly can level. I also have to say that having professionals on the board is such a strength. I mean, people like Chris who are just technical geniuses able to put together anything for the website or anything at all that I would ever need. And then Tara, who can throw together something graphically beautiful, but also impactful. You know, that's that's a massive gift. It's really great having such a variety of people coming from different backgrounds on the board. I think that's what makes us very strong. And I think that also makes us very flexible because we're not stuck in one specific way of doing things. Well, thank you so much for your time, Amanda. It was great to talk and hear these stories this way. <laughs> You're welcome, Jared. You can learn more about Nondiscon at ndkdenver.org. Show notes and a feedback form are available at conventionalpodcast.com. And you can reach out to me on Twitter at, at conventionalpod or by email at conventionalpodcast at gmail.com. Please let me know if you have any comments about the show or suggestions for guests. Thanks for listening.